0: Before you listen to this podcast, you can subscribe to The Critic magazine with the current offer of three issues for just £5. Head to
1: our website www.thecritic.co.uk to subscribe today. Hello and welcome back to The Critic podcast. This week, Graham Stewart speaks to Catherine Berbelsing on education during coronavirus and how schools are coping with remote learning. Catherine is headmistress of Michaela Community School in Brent, a trailblazing school achieving very high results from its pupils. Also in this podcast, Graham asks Emeritus Professor of History, Jeremy Black, whether there is a point to counterfactual history. Catherine Burblesingh, you are uh, head of a free school in Brent with about 600 pupils. Uh, between the ages of eleven and eighteen, obviously school 's been out uh, since March uh, when the schools were closed for coronavirus. How are you keeping your pupils engaged during this period?
0: well um, you know it isn 't easy, especially if you have a challenging intake in the inner city. Uh, we make sure that all the families get a phone call at least one phone call per week from a teacher who the child knows and has a relationship with and um, That's to check up on the work that we've been setting them. Uh, we set uh, a variety of different work. So some of it is just online using uh, online systems where they can do the work online. Then there is, uh, we send home videos that the teachers make for them, teaching them stuff and then they have to do various work and send in photographs of that work. Uh, with our sixth form, we're doing interactive Zoom lessons. Uh, the reason we're not doing the Zoom lessons lower down in the school, and it's interesting because Andrew Adonis is constantly saying how schools should all be providing the Zoom lessons for all, all lessons. And I, I think that would be a, a bad idea with an intake like ours because um, they simply wouldn't do any work. <laughs> and I know he thinks, but, but but if you do a Zoom lesson, then surely they're working. No, it just looks as if they're working. And um, I, know, I saw a tweet of his this morning where he was saying, um, well, it's it, it, the private schools like Eton are doing Zoom lessons all day. Well, yes, because they have to justify their fees. And so it looks like the children are working. I would argue that even the boys at Eton will not be doing the work that it looks like it's being done <laughs> via Zoom lessons. However, if you set certain activities that have to be checked via photographs and via the phone call, which helps to motivate the children, um, I, I actually think that that's far better for our children. Now, I mean, obviously, Ethan needs to do what it does, and I'm, I'm not, I, 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 you know, they know their children better than I do. But um, I know for us, it would be silly to do Zoom lessons throughout. We do do it for the sixth form, however. Um, and that's because they are mature enough and um, you know, they, they're just. They're different. <laughs> they, they, they also, they're, it's already selective at six Form, isn't it? <laughs> you know, just like the boys at Eton. Um, you, children who are in families where uh, they might not recognize uh, the value of education, they're not particularly supportive, um, they're not going to make sure that they're sat down that zoom lesson and there's all sorts of ways in which you can trick the teacher into thinking you're there and you're not actually there and you're not doing any work so far better to plow your resources uh i think as a head teacher into trying to inspire the children by via those phone calls and and support like we send home lots of postcards to the children to say well done and pick them out for merits and commendations and so on um just to keep their spirits up so um uh, you know, every school is different. Uh, different head teachers have to make uh, different judgments, and, and that's what we've done for us. An amazing
1: number of schools, it seems, haven't really been setting meaningful work to be done at home. Is that explicable, depending on the particular circumstances the school finds itself in? Or really is that a sign that, that some schools haven't, frankly, made the effort to adapt to a very challenging situation?
0: Yeah. I don't know actually how many schools aren't uh, providing much work I, I have no idea although, although I know that obviously there are some I know that just from people on Twitter Families who are not trying to be particularly negative, they're genuinely asking the question, well, I really haven't heard much from the school, or we get an email once a week with some suggestions of what to do, but that's it, you know, and um, I don't think that they're making this up. I, I do think that when teachers say, oh, these families are just, you know, inventing this stuff, or they don't realize that, in fact, the school has been in daily contact with their child, that their child is lying to them i don't I don't necessarily think that's true. I do think of course, there are some schools who will not be providing the work that they ought to be providing um I think that uh, sometimes it'll be because the school isn't particularly good. sometimes it'll be because then um, their workforce, their teachers are perhaps not haven't been as capable at getting on board with this whole online learning so um I have a very young staff. They've quickly adapted. We also all use visualizers at school, which are these little projector things that you can you write on a piece of paper and it projects it up on the wall. And we got ready for this before we left. We made sure every teacher had a visualizer. So it's very easy to make video lessons. You know, it, all of this doesn't come naturally necessarily to, you know, a 55-year-old teacher who isn't that uh familiar with 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 online activity. So there will be a variety of reasons. Um, I, I mean, what what can I say? I mean, I, you know, there are some good schools and there are some bad schools, and I, it's a good it's a good way for a for a parent to make a judgment now of how good their their child's school is.
1: Has it been your experience that really in the homes of all your pupils there is sufficiently good internet? connectivity to do the sort of tasks you're set out, Or actually, are there some cases of social deprivation where, I mean, really, the, I mean, online coursework is simply impossible?
0: Yeah, so uh, everyone has access to a phone. Uh, the poorest of children have access to a phone. So we make sure that our video lessons are made in such a way so that you can see them on a phone and you can do them. Um, so I haven't found that to be a problem. I mean, there's a couple where we've gone through the scheme, you know, to get them a tablet because perhaps they don't have enough. They've got a number of children in, in, in the household. And so they'd like to have, um, rather than having to share the tablet, they'd like to be able to have access just for, you know, for each child to have access to a tablet. Um, the, the thing that we need to realize as a country is that the tablet, it's true needs to be there for them to access their learning. On the other hand, it's the tablet that will stop them from doing the work because of course they spend all their time on Snapchat and Instagram. And I do find it very odd that this isn't part of the conversation that we're literally spending millions as a, a, the government is spending millions to uh, enable these children to have tablets, but they don't realize that it's the tablet that really does ruin their lives. I mean, it. it it, and when I say ruins their lives; it's not just that it stops them from working, it, it and breaks their concentration and, and breaks their brains because they're unable to carry a thought through and follow a narrative arc. Because every minute, the phone or the you know is going beep, beep, beep in their faces, and they they go off on uh, uh, you know, and then they click on something, they go to something else, they click on something else, they go, and and they they just their concentration spans are shot because of that. But um. It's not just that. It's the people who they meet online. So I'm genuinely concerned about some of our children right now. The girls who will be meeting much older men. I've got so many examples of girls who get involved. I say older men, you know, perhaps 18, 19. They are 13. um, And being led astray. Then other issues with boys who get involved with uh, gangs. Uh, the Undesirables. The kinds of other children who you really wouldn't want your child mixing with. And this is all done online in your child's bedroom. And you have no idea what's going on. Um, So, and and this has now been a prolonged period where children have unsupervised access to the internet. I have campaigned for a very long time against the idea of unsupervised access to the internet. And uh, we all talk about the internet as this wonderful thing. Of course, it is wonderful. um, And it's great that we're able to support children online with their learning. But we need to recognize the dangers that come with that.
1: You've created a a challenging but very safe environment uh, at your school in Brent. Um, but, uh, I mean, that isn't the, the case for everyone. But now, now that there the will be primary schools being asked to go back at the beginning of June, is this, is this sensible? Or how, how do you perceive the difference in risk between uh, children returning to school and uh, their missing out on important uh, uh, education?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, obviously we need to get the country back to work. I mean, that needs to happen at some point. Whether this is the right point, I don't know. I'm not a virologist. I'm not an economist. I don't know the the, the worries that government has on both sides. I am trusting the government because I believe in the principles of leadership and when someone is leading you, you need to follow their leadership. I ask that of my staff with me, so government asks that of me and I will do that. Um, I know that there are many teachers out there who are very worried. Um, I suppose a lot of them are asking, well why have we chosen primary when children of the age of five are far more difficult to have socially distanced than children who are older obviously because they're five so they don't really understand. uh, and i i suspect there'll be some reasons you know but the thing is government haven't really made this clear which which is uh well, poor leadership is what I would say. Uh, as a good leader, you want to be clear with the people below you. So I would have thought they'd want to make it clear that perhaps it's because they're very worried about those younger children falling behind. Because if you fall behind with your reading and so on now, those children who come from challenging backgrounds where the parents will not be reading with them at home, where the children are not being supported in terms of their learning, they will uh, they will be in a very difficult situation later. The older ones is perhaps not as much of an issue. I also imagine... Imagine that uh, families who have young children at home are not able to get back to work if you're 13 or 14 or 15 year old is sat at home it's not such an issue you might leave them and go to work whereas obviously if your are 5 year old is at home you cannot go to work so perhaps it's also about them wanting to stimulate the economy I also imagine that perhaps secondary school kids if they make their way to school now they will pack the buses and that means social distancing has gone out the window completely for everyone not just the kids on the buses but for all the adults as well um, so I suspect that might go into their, you know, come into their thinking. Primary children tend to live very close to their schools and their parents will drop them there, which is very different from how secondary kids get to school. So there's all these, these uh, things that the government will be considering. They haven't spoken about any of it, which I find really odd. So, of course, teachers don't have access to any of this information. And um, they understandably are very worried. Uh, they don't understand why primaries have been chosen. They don't understand what the thinking is and what the hope is for the future. I mean, even secondaries. The guidance has said that um, we might have face-to-face teaching come June the 1st for secondary. Well, what does that mean? I mean, and so all these secondaries are now running around planning for possibly having face-to-face teaching, but we don't really know what that means on June the 1st. You know, none of this has been clarified. So I do feel for schools because we're not having clear direction from the top. Um, On the other hand, there are the teaching unions that the government are having to fight with. So I suspect that perhaps they have to be very woolly in what they say, precisely because the unions are going to attack them for anything that they say. So... I I I don't know. It's, it's an impossible situation. I feel like there are these two camps. The unions won't budge at all. Government need to get the the country moving. Understandably, I feel very sorry for them. They're in a very difficult situation. I also think that the teaching community, generally speaking, is it leans to the left. Not all of them, but generally speaking, teachers lean to the left. The government, of course, is a right leaning government, and so teachers will naturally be very suspicious of the government because it's not their government. You know, lots of them didn't vote for them. They don't believe in them. So, um, it is, it is very hard. I do, I do feel for the government in the, the, the position they're in. But on the other hand, I feel for schools because we simply haven't had much clarity.
1: So there, there's a lack of clarity coming from government and we have nine unions advising their members not to engage with the uh, return to school plans. What is your sense of what teachers will do being pulled in two different directions here? Will they listen to the yeah. government or will they listen to the unions? Or, or will they listen to, to yeah. parents?
0: Yeah, it's a very good question. I can't wait to see what happens. I mean, it is hard. I think that um, I think that uh, those because it puts heads like me in a very difficult situation. I mean, obviously, I'm not in that, I'm secondary right now, so I will be in that position eventually. For the for primary heads. They're trying to staff their schools to be able to open up. And then the unions are telling their staff not to turn up. Well, what are the heads meant to do? On the one hand, they need to open up their schools. On the other hand, they don't have the staff. They can't do it. Um, The the other thing I haven't mentioned, actually, our local authority in Brent has been very clear about the fact that they do not believe that children uh, transfer the virus to adults. Now I know I've said that before and teachers jump up and down and say that's not true. I mean look, I don't know. I'm not a virologist. All I know is what the the the, the people in positions of authority speak to the virologists are telling me. And they say that children don't pass on the pass on the virus to adults. And now if that is true, if it is true, then that changes everything, doesn't it? It really does. Um now do children of course pass on the virus to each other? That I'm not quite sure about. Um We can, of course, try and social distance with fewer year groups in schools. So if we have schools full, social distancing is impossible. One can try and do it with fewer children. I do think with the younger ones, it is basically impossible because they simply won't understand. With the older ones, you can try. But it may be that government have decided it doesn't matter that we can't social distance in school. That who, who cares? Actually, schools are safe places because children won't pass on the virus, in which case it doesn't matter if you don't social distance. And what we need to do is stimulate the economy and get people back to work. I mean, one of the things I desperately worry about is our families. You know, teachers' salaries are safe, but the fact is a lot of our families are cleaners, um, job men, you know, they've lost their income. So how are they going to survive? You know, so I do think teachers need to listen to people who are not in positions where their salaries are secure, Um, because otherwise we we appear very heartless. And I'm slightly embarrassed, you know, about... the unions and their just, their militancy. On the other hand, (laughs) we don't have much clarity. I understand why teachers are worried and scared and I don't think government have done much to try and alleviate those fears.
1: So one last question, if I may. Uh, The expectation is that secondary schools will return with the new academic year in September. Uh, Assuming coronavirus is still going around at some level, uh, what kind of measures do you foresee your own school in- introducing to make uh, the work environment as safe as it reasonably can be
0: so I will have to collapse the timetable, and that's something that all secondaries will have to do and it's a huge job for the timetabler in the school i mean it, this normally takes days weeks i mean not days, weeks for a timetable to come about for the following year and so on. so this is something that we're already working on and all schools will be doing that, secondaries and then you've got to have classes of about 15 if you can, I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a primary head and she was saying but that's impossible, I don't have enough staff to make to make it so that I have 15 children in the class so, you know, the staffing is everything, you know, if you send home everyone who has a cough, you send home everyone who has asthma and you have you know an underlying issue, well you don't have anyone in your school or you've got about a third of your school left um, to to teach. Uh, Now our local authority have told us that if you have mild asthma in fact you can come into school so that was a big deal I looked heard that and thought well thank goodness for that that means that actually a number of my staff will be able to come in because um, everyone has, has asthma so you know uh, it's so it's the collapsing of the timetable then it's the washing of hands so uh, perhaps dedicating a particular lesson to in the day to when they can get through into the toilets in order to wash their hands I mean some schools are actually building troughs and in the playground so that they can wash their hands in the playground. That is an enormous expense. And obviously the big academy chains can afford that. Uh, we're a standalone uh, school. We, we simply can't do that. So, um, but that, that is an idea. Uh, and, and obviously discipline. I mean, one advantage we have is that we have very, very uh, strict discipline. So the children are going to listen to what we say. and They're already used to lining up and, and, and being sensible. You know, they, 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 they don't Um, bash each other about and run around and all that, that doesn't happen at Michaela. Now in schools where things are not as strict, uh, I I do think that they will have issues because the children simply won't listen and I understand the concerns again of teachers. On the other hand, you know, a friend was saying to me, yes, but what about prison officers, Catherine? You know, prison officers get spat at regularly, uh, get attacked by prisoners. and we haven't heard anything from the prison officers demanding X, Y, and Z. You know, we we haven't heard anything from policemen who, again, will be in very difficult situations. Um, so it, I you know, I'm, I suppose I'm just expressing a slight embarrassment. The teachers seem to be the you know the, the ones who are shouting a lot, and the, the policemen and the prison officers are not shouting. On the other hand, I suppose lots of teachers would say, well, they should shout. You know, they should be worried. Um, of course uh i'm worried we are all worried it's just that i suppose we all also need to recognize that the country needs to get back to work and we're never going to be 100% safe and you know you take a risk every time you send your child out of the door you know he might get hit by a car he might um get beaten up by somebody You might get, especially in the inner city, you know, there are real dangers with knives and so on. And I know our families are constantly concerned with that kind of thing, as are we at school for the children's lives.
1: Primary schools have reopened in Denmark and and Norway and seemingly uh, without undue problems. Uh, Are schools in the UK or in England, only in England, are schools in England uh, following this experience in Scandinavia to work out best practice?
0: Um... No, I have no idea what they're doing in Scandinavia in terms of practice inside each individual school. I think different schools are different. You know, you have different buildings. I mean, our our corridors are very narrow. Other schools have wide corridors. Different schools will have different experiences and they need to just do what's best for them. Um, and, and that's fine. We just need time and we need clarity from government. And I would stress uh, to government to, to please give us as much clarity as possible because not only will it help us plan but it will help to alleviate fears. And that is what they need. They need the teachers to believe that they have their best interests at heart. And I'm not sure that the teachers currently believe that.
1: Well, we'll have to leave it there. Catherine uh, Birbel Singh, good luck preparing for a new school year in September. But before then, uh, good luck to you and all, all your pupils. Uh,
0: thank you very much.
1: What if the authorities in Wuhan in December had taken seriously reports of a new virus that was spreading rapidly uh, through their city? What if, instead of uh, trying to hush up uh, and destroy evidence, they had uh, made that evidence available faster and quicker? Is there any value in asking these what-ifs, or should we just live in the present, accepting the world as it is, Counterfactualism is a controversial area of study amongst historians, some of whom think it has little value, Um, but one distinguished historian who thinks otherwise is talking to me today, Jeremy Black, Emeritus Professor at the University of Exeter. Uh, Jeremy, you're a defender of the counterfactual approach. Why?
2: Yes, I think the counterfactual approach returns us to the uncertainty of the past. And what that does is it undermines deterministic accounts. And you're quite right, there are differences of opinion among historians, and I think it's no accident that historians on the left, particularly those who are Marxists or pseudo-Marxists, one can think of E.P. Thompson, and others who are otherwise on the left, one can think of Richard Evans, have been great critics of counterfactualism because, of course, they know the direction that they want history to go in, um, whereas historians who are of a more conservative disposition, such as myself or Andrew Roberts, Niall Ferguson, have been more inclined to emphasise the extent to which uh, history in the past uh, there were multiple choices, which inevitably is important when one's looking at the present or the future. I mean, I always think it's hilarious when people who tell me that it was obvious what was going to happen when those listening to this will have known not just with the response to this virus, but also episodes like, for example, the vote on Brexit or indeed the American presidential election, which is forthcoming. Uh, it is not inevitable which way things will go and what that does is in a way return a degree of power or to use the jargon term agency to the individuals involved it was the individual voters who determined on brexit it will be the individual voters who determine on the american presidential election it was the decisions or failure to act of individuals in china who were responsible for the spread of COVID 19 so that in a sense i think that um Uh, counterfactualism is inherently not just anti-deterministic, but inherently returns us to attention to the roles of the individuals and groups who live at any one time.
1: Even if we uh, take an interest in counterfactualism as as a different way of uh, looking at events, surely it's the role of the historian to interpret what happened, not what didn't happen.
2: Well, (laughs) What happens is in part a matter of the playing through of the uh, priorities and assumptions at the time with reference to the particular frictions of other uh, other events and other other factors. So uh, you might say to me it was clear-cut what happened and what I could put it to you is that in practical terms that involved at the very least people thinking what are, what were the alternatives and we need to understand those alternatives and we need to assess their value uh, in order to determine what we think of their judgment. I mean, it's not much good saying of people in the past, the present or the future, X was perceptive or X was thoughtful or X understood the context within which they operated unless one actually considers what were the validity of the alternatives and why they determined on the policy they followed. So the only way to actually understand decision making is to think about the decisions taken. And thinking about decisions means considering the alternatives it's only if you assume that people have no choice that it's inevitable that they should do a or b that you say oh therefore it's a waste of time considering alternatives
1: is there i wonder a a difference though between having a, a slightly more empathetic approach to decision makers in the past empathetic in the sense of having a better understanding of the range of options either they faced or including those options they perhaps didn't comprehend or, or chose not to uh comprehend at the time and uh a, a school of counter-faction that says you know they took path a they could have taken path b and if path b had happened then uh c would have been the result but actually can can we draw that determinist line from from b to c
2: no you've always got to be very careful about that because of as soon as an alternative is chosen, uh, it's not by any means clear what would have been the obvious outcomes, a range of possible outcomes comes into play. Um, if one could, in my view, and I, you know, I've written a book on this, Other Paths, Different presents, and Alternative Futures, I mean, what I tried to argue in there is that it is valid to consider counterfactuals that people at the time faced and were aware that they faced. Um, So in other words, um, let's say uh, D-Day on the 6th of June 1944, it's entirely reasonable to ask the question, what would have happened had that been postponed? Because indeed its postponement was very much considered by Eisenhower on the basis of weather predictions. What isn't really, in my view, uh, worth considering is what would have happened if an asteroid had hit the western approaches on the night of the 5th to the 6th of June creating a tsunami that would have uh, devastated the invasion fleet because although that was remotely possible uh, nobody considered it and therefore in my view it's not a helpful counterfactual.
1: So let let me give an example of of a counterfactual and get your sense of whether this is uh, a scenario which is worth historians playing through. in uh, 1914, uh, Gabriel Princip uh, intends to assassinate the Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo. Uh, he misses his first attempt to do so, and dejected, he goes off to have a sandwich. As he's having a sandwich, he sees the Archduke's uh, motor car uh, backing down a road, having taken a wrong turning. He's therefore presented with a second opportunity and takes it, the Archduke and his wife are killed, and a little over a month later, uh, a, a world war happens. Is there value in saying, but for princes going off for a sandwich, uh, the First World War might not have happened, given what triggered it? Or is there also value in saying, well, if it didn't happen then, it would have happened sooner or later, because let's look at the position of the great powers, that their, their clash was coming. And if it hadn't been the events in Sarajevo, it it might have been uh, one of any other number of tinderboxes that would have lit it.
2: Well, I mean, that's certainly a very good question, and it's one, as you know, that's attracted a lot of counterfactual attention. Um, What I think one could fairly say is there had been Balkan crises before, indeed, at the time of the First and Second Balkan Wars in 1912 to 1913. Um, What's interesting is why the assassination plays through. In other words, you can assume that provocative steps occur, let's say the Austrian occupation of Bosnia in uh, um, 19, annex, annexation of Bosnia in 1908, you can assume that provocative atta- uh, actions occur. Why do those actions trigger a response in any particular moment? Now that does direct your attention to specific people making specific decisions at particular moments rather than to suggest that it is an inevitable consequence. Um, and you are The question about uh, the causes of war, which, as you know, I've written a couple of books on, it's very easy to argue that a cause of war, or indeed a result of war, is inevitable. You know, the classic result of war inevitable is the argument that the side with the greatest resources or the side that supposedly represents whatever you supposedly think modernity means in warfare is going to win. Well, the latter obviously is not the case. We can see many examples of that not being the case. Um, but in as terms of the former is concerned, once you slow it down and say, well, act Actually, um, it is not inevitable that fighting will break out or if fighting does break out, that it will necessarily lead to a massive conflagration. And we give you a good example of the latter. China and India go to war in 1962. It is a very serious potential, but the war is rapidly brought to a close. Now, the question of why that is rapidly brought to a close and other conflicts are not is one that invites you to look at counterfactuals because the obvious alternative to consider as to why it doesn't end so quickly is to consider what would have happened if it had escalated and how far that helps to um, initiate or encourage caution on the players involved, and on, their, and on their and for their allies. So, I would actually argue that inherent to the look at the causes of war is the extent to which, in the past powers had to consider their counterfactuals. I mean, you refer to 1914. It is instructive that in 1914, as in 1939, Italy does not come in on the side of its ally. Um, And it has to actually consider. It has to work through the counterfactuals of what happens if it does. 1914, that would have been Germany and Austria. 1939, it would have been Germany. And in each case... Uh, with implications for other powers, principally France. So it, that was not inevitable. And indeed, if you're looking at the world wars, I mean, this can even more clearly be seen in World War Two. The actual sides that emerge are far from inevitable. Um, you know, in the um, summer of 1940. Germany is an ally of the Soviet Union. Um, That is not the case um, by um, July 1941. There is nothing inevitable about it, and that therefore invites the questions, the questions which people considered at the time, policymakers, generals, planners at every level, considered at the time, what if? Um, and therefore, it's appropriate if we wish to understand the decision making process to recreate the uncertainty within which they operated. Now, obviously, a lot of people don't use history for that purpose. They use it in terms of a, a rhetoric of easy answers and obvious apparent outcomes. And that's very attractive, particularly to ideologues. And, you know, it's been very attractive to, let us say, the extreme right with its focus on the supposed ascendancy and role of of race in history or the left with the comparable one with class. But in fact, both those traditions are deeply flawed because not just that they remove agency from people, as I was suggesting earlier, but also because they tended to assume that outcomes uh, were going going to uh, appear in some form or other as, as either necessary or obvious or apparent. And, you know, I, I have to say, if you slow down anything, whether you're looking at international relations, high politics um, or war, you are much more sceptical and much more wary of that interpretation.
1: And I, I wonder where economic history comes into this. I mean, you, you, you were speaking about how counterfactual history is unattractive to uh, to Marxist historians and, and left-wing historians generally, because it, it appears to question trends which which they perceive. Um, Economic historians are also not very attracted to counterfactual history. Is that for the same reason, in that a lot of economics is is about trend prediction?
2: Yes, it tends to be structuralist. I mean, uh, obviously, um, one thing that I would have thought is very clearly... um, something where you can discuss counterfactualism with is with reference to historical climactic changes. I mean, we know, you know, leaving aside the present debate uh, about the rate and cause and consequences of climate change. One can see climate change in the past, for example, the so-called Little Ice Age, which directly fed through into agricultural productivity and indeed directly affected population size through um, uh, making people more vulnerable to epidemic diseases and therefore reduced the, as it were, consumer pull as well as the labor force. Um, so I would put it to you that that is an example now at the present moment the current uh, world pandemic although it's uh, you know obviously very alarming uh, it's not actually um, going from anything we can see to affect the overall population of the world and its size or um, in its capacity to create new generations I mean from that point of view the fact that it particularly doesn't hit the young is very significant but were we at the present moment to be having a viral uh, pandemic of the virulence of, let's say, yellow fever, and were that to be affecting young people and therefore productive capability in terms of the reproductive uh, facility of the species then we would probably be sitting here not discussing um, uh, economic models predicated uh, uh, on, on the classic lines that were being <laughs> that were being advanced uh, for much of the last century um, you can also leave aside of course the very interesting but quirky point is that if somebody argues something let's say Karl Marx and do they by their very act of providing a proposition which a, a, a certain number of people then follow, in fact, change the context within which they're operating or within which, this, within which human beings operate. That's a different one. That's a minor one. But I certainly would say that in terms of climatic change and demographics, you can see very major importance in terms of the push factor of production and the pull factor of consumption.
1: I wonder whether it's an approach which uh, financial modellers should uh, be more cognizant of when they are uh, offering their advice.
2: In the terms of financial modelling, or indeed any other form of modelling, what I would argue about counterfactualism is that it is part and parcel of historical scholarship done well, often it isn't done well, which is to emphasise uncertainty. Now, the emphasis on uncertainty means that you need to have a greater sense that risk is not, and chance are not add ons to a model. They're not mere frictions. They ought to be integral to the process by which one tries to analyze situations. Now, that is an antithesis to the model-making and modernizing conceptions which underlie a lot of modern strate- strategic thought, a lot of modern uh, policy making, a lot of the modern social sciences, and I'm afraid to say a lot of rather poor work in modern historical uh, writing. And to my mind, all of those uh, elements Uh, that I decry share a tendency to, as it were, know the future uh also, incidentally, to know the present, uh, to know what you are going to be doing when you vote or when you consume things, what you think, to maybe reduce you to an expression of what they choose to see as your socioeconomic status or your age or your religion or where you come from. And my own view is that this is philosophically, empirically and conceptually different very flawed so i would argue that in talking about uh, counterfactualism i'm not talking about a sort of quirky aspect of um considering past present and future i e you know what happens if we get human beings on mars or what would have happened if uh, the greeks had failed at troy what i am arguing is that we are in in practice trying to encourage the use of history as a means to consider past present and future in a kind of liberal, by which I mean old-fashioned liberal, not modern liberalism, liberal way that allows for human agency and allows for uncertainty.
1: Do you feel, turning to the current crisis of our times, do you feel that there is enough of that uh, uncertainty in the sort of statistical modelling upon which uh, that the government is, is basing its response to coronavirus?
2: Well I can I just say i'm not sure that that is the crisis of our times. I would say no, there, there the are many there times. are there are many more significant factors at the present moment at play in the world um, world rise in population maybe environmental change if you're looking at these circumstances of human beings, maybe locusts in Africa are actually going to do more damage uh, than the virus in europe i don't know I don't know that and it's worth thinking about those but if what you're asking is are people overly certain. Uh, Yes, as we've discussed, I think what they've done is because they really find it very difficult to consider this in the broader strategic terms. What they've done is operationalize it uh, in terms of the strain and modeling the strain upon health services. Well, that is important. And the people working in those health services are doing a fantastic job, which shows us how um, modern uh, dedication can Stretch, But it also is a way of crowding out more uh, uncertain questions about the consequences, potential permutations of closing down economies, of influencing codes of behavior, of increasing the powers of states, uh, and in fact also of empowering an ideology of state control. Now, I would put it to you that that was not inevit- in, in any way an inevitable pattern of where we were a year ago or even, in fact, two months ago. But equally, the outcome of this is not inevitable. After all, by um, let's say, August or September, you may have saber rattling in the South China Sea meet, meet let us say, a much more um, um, unpredictable uh, and dangerous um, threshold of somebody sinking somebody else's ship. You shouldn't necessarily, and people then starting to get really uh, Um The capacity uh, of other causes, if you just simply want to call the bomb death, the capacity of other causes to cause death is much higher than from this virus and the most obvious one at the present moment with the nature of confrontation in in that region is is actually an atomic exchange of some type
1: so uh finally we we have to draw this to a close finally if you were brought in now to to advise government from a uh, a historian's long-view perspective and, and, a, and a, uh, an awareness of counterfactualism, what, what would you tell them they, they should be at least keeping in mind?
2: I would say to them that they really should be trying to restart the economy as quickly as possible because the number of uncertain outcomes of the present uh, restrictions is actually, and the dangers that they represent, are potentially much greater than what appears to be the known hazards, serious as they are, of people like myself dying because we're in a certain age group or a certain health category.
1: Professor Jeremy Black? As ever, a great pleasure to talk to you, and we look forward to the future with hope and curiosity. Thank you very much for joining.
2: Thank you very much.
0: If you've enjoyed listening to The Critic Podcast, why not subscribe to have the magazine delivered to your
1: door? Subscribe today with the offer of three issues for just £5 by heading to our website, www.thecritic.co.uk.